Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Andy Farrar is a psychiatrist in North Carolina. I came across his book, Hemingway's Brain, published by the University of South Carolina Press, and it was an intriguing account and a very good study and consideration of the effect of his injuries and his psychiatric conditions on his life and ultimately his creativity. So Dr. Farrar has graciously agreed to discuss this with us. Dr. Farrar, thank you so much for being with us. Hemingway has been called and likened to one of the truly great writers of all times. Indeed, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954. So tell us, please, about his genius, his challenge, your thoughts. Well, he certainly is in the discussion. If he's not the greatest American author, he's in the discussion of the top three or five, I'm sure. He appeals to so many. The life has so many facets. The historical aspect of the life, I think every major event in the 20th century, whether you're looking at you know, the lost generation in Paris or World War One or World War Two or the Cuban Revolution, I think every Spanish Civil War, every major event in his lifetime, he was a player in, and there's a chapter about him, those great histories, you know, so he, he plays a role. So, yeah, he's a fascinating, fascinating character, and to me, so many times where we just get things wrong, we accept that there was a William Shakespeare who lived in Stratford and so forth, when the truth is that was just a pen name for somebody else. There's so many myths passed down to us that are just simply not accurate, and that's what fascinated me about Hemingway. People always told me he was bipolar, and he wasn't bipolar. He never had a manic episode, and people always want to blame the alcoholism for his demise, and then certainly it played a role. But I was fascinated by the fact that people just got his biography wrong, and there were so many good biographers, and, and just trying to explore his mental demise, I, I think I got it right. I think that he really was a victim of multiple head trauma in a very organic, very real sense. Just like now, we have discussions about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and I'm very clear in the book that I believe he suffered from chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And interestingly, just this week, there was a lot of information in the general media about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, especially amongst football players. And that's where the headlines are getting grabbed. I started this book over 17 years ago, and I came up with this thesis. So, so here I'm 15 years ago shopping around this article called Hemingway's Brain. What's funny was I just saw this thesis becoming headline news. Uh, but you're absolutely right. When Hemingway's time, it was not even called post-concussive syndrome or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Believe it or not, at the time he was getting shock therapy for his depression with psychosis, an article in the British Journal of psychiatry called it accident neuroses, and it was arguing that these poor folks who get in these car accidents, well, they're, and they're complaining of all these neurological symptoms. They're just neurotics. It's a form of somatization disorder, a form of attention-seeking, right? So in his doctor's defense, they really were not equipped to deal with it. Now, Hemingway was obviously brilliant, and he wrote about Ad Francis. I talk about that in the book. The, um, the Battler is the name of the story, and this is about a boxer with chronic traumatic encephalopathy that was actually based on two boxers that were that Hemingway knew of. He didn't know them, but he knew of them, and he knew their story. It was Ad Wolgast and I believe uh, Oscar Nelson, who's, who were two boxers of Hemingway's era that were known to have what they said their brains were scrambled, right, from the punishment they took in the ring. So he had no trouble describing chronic traumatic encephalopathy in his literature, and then he later developed it. He had no trouble describing post-concussive symptoms and syndrome 
syndrome in his letters, particularly after his two plane crashes in, in Africa. He was writing a letter from Kenya talking, and he, he would use the word concussion. In World War II, he would use, he would talk about his sensory changes and the headaches that don't go away and the disequilibrium and sense, guess, smelling is more acute and, and light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, things like this. So he had no trouble defining his symptomatology, but it was uh, eluding his doctors at the, at the end of his life there. And I think that's what ultimately led to his demise. And what makes this interesting is that he came to all these events. He came into life with a very real strong biological predisposition to depression. His father committed suicide using the Colt pistol that his own father or Hemingway's grandfather carried in the Civil War. Um, brother committed suicide. He was a diabetic. Of course, he had diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And when, when the choice was amputation or, or <laughs> demise, he, he, he chose uh, suicide. You know, He had two sisters commit suicide. There's a, a famous photo of the family when Ernest is just a little boy. And everyone in the family except the mother and one sister committed suicide. Even his grandfather Hall on his mother's side of the family, there's a story Hemingway told in a letter to his fourth wife, Mary, about how this man suffered from Bright's disease, which was probably, at the time, that was kidney inflammation. Maybe he had renal stones or something very painful. And he was going to shoot himself, but his father, Hemingway's father, Clarence Edmonds Hemingway, had removed the bullets from his pistol so that when he reaches under his pillow to grab the gun and pull the trigger, it was, it was blank. And Hemingway wrote that that was a dirty trick to play on the man. If a guy wants to end his suffering, he should be able to do that. But the story is probably apocryphal because Hemingway was only five years old at the time this incident should have happened. But what it tells us is that Hemingway himself believed that he was descendant of suicidal men on both sides of his family. And he even wrote to Pauline Pfeiffer, his second wife, wrote to her mother saying that he was glad to have their bloodline and his family to breed out the suicidal streak. So he understood the genetics of suicide as well before others sort of picked up on it. So yeah, he inherited quite a lot. Interesting thought just came to my mind. When you're reading his books, it's almost as if you are sitting in and listening to his psychotherapy. Of course, the writing is the psychotherapy, but just a fascinating process of really touching some of his inner psychodynamic processes. You know, that's a, a fantastic question, and he was always uh, on the quest. What I mean by that is when people would ask him, oh, don't you see a therapist or don't you have an analyst, he'd say, look, my typewriter is my therapist. That's my analysis. And what he meant by that was that the act of working was his therapy. And even when Scott Fitzgerald, of course, was suffering from depression and, and Hemingway was very angry at him for whining about it in public, even writing about it and the crack up and so forth. So Fitzgerald here is writing publicly about his depression and so forth. Hemingway thought that was just nonsense, that the cure for that was to simply work, that work is your therapy. Somebody with your talent needs to sit at that typewriter and process and work and so forth. But I think that even though Hemingway believed that the act of writing was therapeutic, what we understand now, that the content was also, that was the therapy. Yeah, the action was fine. But what he was processing Processing was therapeutic for him. So I think he was on this continual journey of self-realization through the fiction. And, and so much of Hemingway's scholarship is looking at the fiction and having these aha moments and putting together 
together, okay, this is this person in this book. And, you know, Jane Mason, his girlfriend was Margot McComber, and Cohen, his frenemy, I guess is what you'd call him, was uh, Jake's enemy in The Sun Also Rises. You know, so there's this whole school of thought where you look at his work as autobiography. And I think now, rather than reading backwards and have these sort of aha moments where we put the pieces together as who in his life is reflected in the fiction, we need to read him forwards, right, as somebody who uses his life, processes his life experience and distills it out into this elegant fiction. But that work, that work of therapy, was how he self-actualized. I think it was an ongoing quest for him. And it's funny how you and I, probably the last generation of psychiatrists to be trained by analysts, you know, in the age of psychopharmacology, and as our field gotten more and more into the molecular, we've sort of dismissed the therapy, and I think really a shame. But now I think that serves us well when we look at literature. You know, literature is where you have so much of literary analysis is therapy, but I think so much of what Hemingway did was his own self-analysis, if that makes sense. You know, D.H. Lawrence said that, that his poetry and fiction were not informed by his pseudo-philosophy, he called it pseudo-philosophy, but, but it was the other way around, that he wrote the poetry and fiction and that informed his philosophy of life. And I think that's the way we need to read Hemingway rather than forwards rather than backwards. I think that's the new generation of Hemingway scholarship to come. But yet, the short answer to your question is I think he was a very tormented soul. You know, I think that if you, you take somebody with, with to have a genius like that who has this exquisite sensitivity, I mean, it's no wonder you're going to wind up with a degree of suicidality. Think about, gosh, the, the story of, is it 10, I think 10 Indians. I was looking at the original manuscript at the Hemingway archives. There are three endings to that story. This is about the little boy being teased, right, that his girlfriend is off with somebody else. Now, the first ending ends with the father and talking about his loneliness. The second ending is about the little girl who comes to her little friend crying and saying she's never going to kiss anybody again and her family members have come home drunk. And it's very clear that this little girl's been the victim of sexual assault. The third ending is about the little boy. It has that lovely, sensitive line that he, you know, when he loses his girlfriend, he says, hey, you know, he woke up and he was awake a long time before he remembered his heart was broken. If Hemingway had ended it with that second scenario with the little girl's trauma and pain. You know, imagine how that might have changed the trajectory of, of Hemingway's studies instead of thinking of him as insensitive to women and such. But I think when you have a man of that type of sensitivity with the genius and the preoccupation with violence, I think that's a very tormented soul. Didn't he engage in boxing and a lot of very dangerous activities? Absolutely. You know, he boxed as, even as a teenager on up, and he claimed that he boxed with a lot of professional fighters. Probably not true, but he helped train a boxer in Paris and so forth. He played football in high school. But the major concussive injuries that I talk about in the book, you have the World War One injury where the five-gallon Austrian mortar is described as lighting within a few feet, like three feet of him, according to one of his buddies. Probably not that close. It probably would have killed him, but it threw him several feet, gave him his first concussion. Then in Paris, 
Harris. And that's, see, that, that's also important. It was a blast injury, right? Not a direct blow to the head, but a blast injury because people do develop chronic traumatic encephalopathy after just one blast injury. They can de develop after one blow as well, but generally it takes multiple blows. The second injury in Paris was the famous skylight incident when he comes home at night at 2 in the morning, pulls the cord to the commode, and unfortunately grabbed the, the cord on a cracked skylight, pulls that down on his head, you know. So here before he's 28 years of age, has two major concussions. I made the comment in one interview that in World War One he got all of the trauma he could have hoped for, but more than he needed, no, or more than he more than he deserved, because he he came back with the war stories and that he was the hero and all that. But at the same time, there was there was something germinating there, right? We had the first of many concussions, and the second one in Paris. Zuma head to World War Two, coming he's on an ill-advised mission, comes around a corner, German anti-tank round blows him out of the side car of a motorbike. He's with Robert Kappa, right, the famous photographer at the time, but he hits his head on a boulder. So in this one injury, he has the direct blow to the head and the blast injury. Had a, possibly another one in World War II. He had a, we know before he even was in France, he was in England, and he was in a car accident. And London was blacked out during the blitz. His friend driving the car plows into a, a water tower that he didn't see in Leicester Square. And so his head hits the windshield, 57 stitches across his frontal area. Then we zoom ahead to a fall off the flybridge of his fishing boat in Cuba. Then we have another car accident in Cuba. And by the time he has two plane crashes in Africa, one of them was very violent and fiery, and, and he'd injured his shoulder in the previous crash. So the door was jammed, and Mary, his wife, and the pilot, pilot kicks out the front window, climbs out, drags Mary out. But Hemingway's too big to get out the window, so he busts open the door with his head, gives himself a basal or skull fracture and another concussion. So it was after that second plane crash that he really had lost a step, and people thought that cognitively there was a decline. His handwriting changes, his speech is different, has slowed and more labored for a period of time. So he also begins writing about post-concussive symptoms. So again, I talk a lot about the organic damage. If you've been keeping a score, at least nine major concussions in his lifetimes. And then we add to that the history of functional alcoholism and then, you know, probably a vascular component compromising the brain because he was generally overweight after 1940, had prediabetes and was hypertensive. So that would put you at risk for maybe a vascular component. So by the time he's in his mid-50s, he has a form of dementia that was predominantly from chronic traumatic encephalopathy with these other contributors. And people always say, well, he, he was delusional and he was depressed. Well, sure, he did get depressed and he, he did have delusions, but his delusions were not the kind you see with depression. And I've seen many patients with major depression with psychotic features. His were very different. He thought he'd be arrested for indecent liberties with a minor. He thought he'd be hauled in by the IRS for undeclared gambling winning. It's been fashionable lately to say, well, he really did have an FBI file, therefore he was not paranoid. Well, sure, lots of folks have an FBI file, right? But the kinds of things that were in his file were no mystery to him. Here's a gentleman who is, knew all the communists in the Spanish Civil War, and he was helping, he actually helped the FBI locate some Spanish communists that were now in Cuba. So he had communication with them directly. So the things that were in his file were generally known to him. There weren't the kind of delusion he had that there was an FBI man in his bathroom listening to everything he said or recording.
during his conversations or that there was uh, one of the interns at the Mayo Clinic where he was being treated was actually a, an FBI man in disguise. Those were not the kinds of things that, you know, that's a different kind of paranoia that, that we're dealing with. That's a function of more of the dementia, I believe. Right. Yeah. Interesting thought just came to my mind. When you're reading his books, it's almost as if you are sitting in and listening to his psychotherapy. Of course, the writing is the psychotherapy, but just a fascinating process of really touching some of his inner psychodynamic processes. Do you ever think in his life that he achieved a peace of mind? I spend a lot of energy in the book talking about how this form of dementia, this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, informed the writing because you can't compromise that the tool. Pianists can, can have dementia and play the piano because the basal ganglia, it's learned memory. You're not using the cortical functioning to, to remember how to play that. It's like riding the bike, right? It's learned memory. The abstract expressionist can, you know, Willem de Kooning. I spend time in the book talking about Willem de Kooning, probably our greatest abstract expressionist, probably the greatest American artist we've had. Now, here's a gentleman who had severe vascular dementia, a heavy smoker and so forth. And by the time the 1980s roll around, he can't recognize family members and he has hallucinations, but they put, put him in front of the canvas and he can paint beautifully. So whatever the impulse is for the abstract expressionist, he's doing it by instinct at this point. But Hemingway needed his tool. He needed his brain because he was such a wordsmith and such a genius with words that when that tool got compromised, he began, eh, kind of looked like a bad imitation of himself. And then later on, the older works that just don't hold up. The posthumous works like Garden of Eden or Islands in the Stream is really more of a sketchbook and so forth. But what's fascinating about those is that the archetypes are still there. Uh, the execution is less competent, but the archetypes he's working with are still, in the seams, they're still kind of prominent, and that's why I think they have some appeal. But I think he was aware of that. And I also talk about how the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, you know how when a patient gets a form of dementia, it tends to magnify certain traits, right? The aggressive person becomes violent or the passive person starts giving their money away. You see this in dementia. One of Faulkner's biographers summed it up beautifully when he said the problem with Hemingway was the confused person with persona. The truth is at some point, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy literally solidified the very worst aspects of the persona, the volatility, the irritability, the braggadocio, you know? So that's the problem. He became sort of a caricature of himself later in life. And again, I think he was organically trapped in that persona movable feast. He was working on that when he died. It's the last work where we see the exaggeration of these traits. The attacks on Fitzgerald are pretty vicious. You know, he kind of uses that work to settle some scores and kind of unfairly. Now, the work was edited, I think, I want to say seven, is it two years maybe by Mary Hemingway and his last editor at Scribner. So the, there is an original manuscript you can read. It's actually been published now that's different than the Mary Hemingway version. We only have a few minutes left, and I would like, if you could, to please give me your thoughts on the fact that, is this like Robin Williams? What moved a man of such creativity, of some success, actually, in life, to one day wake up and end his life? Yeah. You bring up Robin Williams, talking about the, what are the most famous suicides in American history. You've got Marilyn Monroe, Hemingway, and Robin Williams. The theory being people thought Williams had a form of Lewy body dementia and that he faced with that. And I think that for Hemingway, the connection would be he went to get the ECT. He thought it would be the cure for him. He got his shock therapy, but it, you know, a couple of days after he's home, he shoots himself after his second round of ECT. For Hemingway, 
the crux of his depression was always related to an inability. Most of the time, when he was talking about depression in his pre-morbid days, he was talking about he couldn't work, he feared he didn't have ideas or physically or mentally could not work, and he was what he would call out of business, right? That to him was a death sentence. If he, he said if he couldn't write, he wouldn't want to live. And the ECT, the shock therapy, was that biological stressor that accentuated and seemed to propel the dementia. Even if the memory deficits would have been short term, they were already on a compromised brain with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So it was a biological stressor that firstly his brain could not handle in the organic sense and it further compromised his ability to work and he felt he couldn't function. But secondly, it psychologically ruined him because he felt that it had erased his memory and that therefore he was ruined and he could not provide. And this is a man who was delusional about finances. I found this lovely letter. Well, I'm not going to call it lovely, but it's more fascinating. That I don't think lovely is the right word, but it's from a psychoanalytical standpoint, it's probably lovely, but it's a letter to his bank. And it's all about code word. You know, it's being secretive and he's going to call and use a fake name and a code number and so forth. And this was five years earlier. So he was completely paranoid about somebody taking his money or con men taking his money or that he had no money. Mary had to call the bank on more than one occasion to prove he had money. So he felt if he couldn't work, couldn't provide, that he was washed up. So again, the ECT itself propelled him physically into a demise and psychologically with that awareness that it had wiped out his memory. In fact, the last piece of professional writing he did was classic Hemingway. He talked about movable feasts being from the remise of my memory, something about his heart and his mind. One has been tampered with, the other doesn't exist. Now, you can read it either way, but he felt his mind had been tampered with and his heart doesn't exist or vice versa, but typical Hemingway ambiguity. But he was aware that his mind was compromised at that point, and that's what did him in. I can hear the passion as I hear you talk about this. I hear your breath of knowledge. I want to thank you very much for putting this all together in a book. It brings up a lot of questions, and it helps us better understand someone who is a very much um, very much a part of our history, literature, culture, and so many other things. Dr. Andy Farrar is a psychiatrist in North Carolina. He wrote a book called... Hemingway's Brain, published by the University of South Carolina Press. Well worth your time. Very interesting and the source of much discussion. Dr. Farrar, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Abby.